passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. If you're somebody who's new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to have you. Here at Crosswinds, we are always talking about our goal is to reach people with Jesus Christ. And we do that in a variety of ways. Sometimes we do that outside of the church and our involvement in the community. And sometimes we do it inside the church and just how we live. And this past Tuesday, I was meeting with Pastor Jordan. Pastor Jordan is our Spencer campus pastor. And we meet on Tuesdays, usually to talk about preaching and leadership. And also just to see what's going on in one another's life and just to pray for each other. And we were talking about life stuff, and he shared with me the coolest story uh, about reaching people with Jesus from his seven-year-old son. Down on the Spencer campus, they had a, a skit for an announcement about the summer camp that they're having down there. And as that skit was going on, Silas, his little son, leans over and pulls on his dad's shirt, and he says, Dad, I want to invite a friend. And so Jordan says, that's good. You can invite a friend. Then when they get to the end of the skit, they said, well, this will be in July. And Silas had a frown on his face and he tugs on his dad's shirt. He says, but dad, I won't see my friend in school in July. How can I invite him? And Jordan says, don't worry. We'll find a way that you can still invite him, even if it is in July. And I thought, isn't that great? Here's a seven-year-old kid reaching people with Jesus simply by inviting his friends to church. I don't know if you're in the elementary school and you're inviting your friends to Awana. I don't know if you're in junior high or senior high and inviting your friends to youth group. That's reaching people with Jesus. That's what we're about. It doesn't matter if you're seven or 77 years old. We want to everybody to hear about Jesus here at Crosswinds. Now, as we get into our study this morning on 2 Samuel chapter 3, I want to begin by just acknowledging and just pointing out the fact we live in a world that is filled with constant conflict and violence. We see this all the time right now in war in, between Ukraine and Russia. That's painful, and there's, we don't have any idea the amount of people that are dying on both sides. It's just a huge loss. There's also conflict between um, America and China when it comes to economically, like who's going to be the controlling dominant economy in the world? Conflict all over again. And if you don't have enough fill of conflict, just simply turn on the evening news. Everything is about bad news and difficulty. Wouldn't it be nice in this world that is so filled with conflict and pain, there was a people that were committed to peace people committed to doing their best to make relationships actually work. I want you to know that as God's people, that's what we're supposed to be. People committed to trying to make peace in a world filled with conflict. And I'll tell you, when we're in the world making peace, it's like a breath of fresh air to the people who are around us. Let me begin with some, uh, a little background so you can understand where we're coming from. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 2. We finished 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel was all about Saul, Israel's first king, who quickly made king and then rejected as king by God. 
then God had another king, David, who was anointed as king. But in 1 Samuel, Saul reigned as king. David was anointed as king, but yet not in power. And there's constant conflict between those two. 1 Samuel finished with Saul dying in battle with the Philistines. And as we picked up in 2 Samuel, where this is our third week of the study, this is how things have been going. 2 Samuel chapter 1, David hears about Saul's death in battle. 2 Samuel chapter 2, which we had last week, David checks with God, well, should I return back to Israel now? And God says, yeah, go back to, you, to Israel. And David goes to Judah. Judah recognizes him. Judah makes him their king. Everything's going well, except there's actually 12 tribes. Only Judah recognized, the southernmost tribe, recognized David as the king. The 11 tribes to the north, there was a man named Abner, who was Saul's army general. He galvanized resistance against David. He organized those 11 tribes, and he put himself really in charge of those tribes. Eventually, he also installed a man named Ishbosheth as a rival king to David. And then Abner... And Ishbosheth went south and created a civil war against David and tried to invade Judah. And it was just a complete and total mess. Now, as we look at this and we think about what's going on, we're going to um, look at this bad blood between these northern and southern kingdoms. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, where we're at today, it really breaks into two parts. Uh, the first part the first five verses, is just sort of a summary uh, of David's rule in this city of Hebron, where he was there for seven years before going to Jerusalem. Then the rest of the chapter is going back to this civil war between the northern and southern kingdom, and it's the story of one person, one key person who switches sides, and it makes all the difference. In this chapter, you're going to see big egos, you're going to see sex, power, and dirty politics, as well as murder. So if you don't get enough of that in the evening news, we have plenty of it on Sunday morning in this chapter. So let's begin uh, here with the first verse. David's time at Hebron was a mixture of success and sin. It says there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. The battle we saw last week in chapter 2 where Abner went south and invaded Judah and started a civil war, that was only the beginning of the fighting, not the end of the fighting. For almost two years, it was this back and forth thing where one side made some progress and killed people, then the other side made some progress and killed people, and going back and forth like a tug of war. Very similar to what we see happening today between Russia and the Ukraine. And as I was studying, I thought, man, this has got to be so difficult for David. Remember that while Saul was chasing him, he got to the point he was so depressed that he actually fled to the enemy, fled to the Philistines for some rest. Do you remember that? Because it was so taxing to be constantly on the run. Now he's become king, but 
Only one tribe recognizes him. Eleven tribes are against him. And now there's constant civil war, constant bloodshed. I'm sure David is exhausted and overwhelmed. I'm sure he's starting to feel like all these years, these years of suffering and running are just a complete and total waste of his life. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe this morning you're in a hard time. Maybe the hard time you're facing is financially. You just can't seem to make ends meet and it doesn't stop. Maybe the hard time you're facing is maritally. You and your spouse just keep getting into conflicts again and again and you say, when will this ever end? Maybe the hard time you're facing is with your kids. It's a constant rebellion and you don't seem to know what to do and you say, God, everybody on Facebook seems happy but I'm not happy. When will there be some peace? I want to challenge you with this thought. These difficult years for David, they were actually the formative years. They were some of his best years. Being on the run, this is the time when he wrote many of his Psalms. This is the time where David's relationship with God was closest. This is the time where his character formed to be, um, to be much more godly than it would have been otherwise. In fact, if you look at the panoramic view of David's life, you'll find it's when the problems go away and everything is easy. That's when David starts to dabble in sin. That's when David actually gets in much serious trouble. It's during the hard times and these difficult times when God is forming his character to be more and more of a godly man. They're actually turning out to be the good years as God draws him closer to himself. So this morning, if you're in one of those hard times that goes on a long time and doesn't seem to end and keeps you on your knees, I just want to challenge you with the thought, those may actually be, when you look back upon your life, some of the better years because that's when you're going to be closest to Jesus and experience the Holy Spirit's grace and comfort in ways that you never can during the good times in this world. Now, we learned that the house of David was growing stronger while the house of Saul was growing weaker. You may wonder, well, how is David's house growing stronger? We see this in the beginning of the second verse. It says, and sons were born to David at Hebron. We're about ready to see David takes six wives and has six sons. In a worldly sense, this was a big measure of success because you had more heirs, you had more women, you had more sons, you had more power. But there's a big but that goes with this. But we know something different. We know God's plan in Genesis was always one man and one woman in marriage for life. Jesus reaffirms that in the Gospels. One man, one woman in marriage for life. Paul reaffirms that in his New Testament letters as well. The Bible clearly defines polygamy as wrong, yet when the writer of 1 Samuel comes along, he simply just lists David's wives and David's sons, and he doesn't seem to make any comment on the sinfulness of this. Just sort of accepts it. Why is that? Last week I told you that the Bible does not necessarily come out and explicitly condemn polygamy. 
but it does implicitly condemn polygamy. In other words, it may not say overtly in verses like this that polygamy is wrong and sinful, but if you look at the results of polygamy in a person's life, it very clear, becomes very evident that polygamy is a really bad, bad choice. Now, to set the record straight, when we see polygamy in the Old Testament, you need to realize that was not a normative thing. Most people in the Old Testament, it was one man, one woman, marriage for life. It was people who were powerful, uh, like kings, who began to practice polygamy. Polygamy was very common in ancient cultures, but the Bible was very clear that when it came to God's kings, God's kings were to be different. God's kings were not to practice polygamy. They were to have holiness and purity in their sexual lives. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 17, which is speaking about kings. And he, that is the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. For everyone who knows God's law, and incidentally, David knew God's law. This idea of David having multiple wives and multiple sons through those wives should be a very troubling thing. What it's showing us is that while David is a great man and David is a godly man, there's an area in his life that he does not have under God's lordship. It's called his sex life. He's following God in many ways, but he's following the culture when it comes to how he operated in the sexual world. Let me show you how this goes and looks at his sons, and you'll see the disaster that comes from the practice of polygamy in his life. Verses two through five. And sons were born to David at Hebron. The first was Amnon, of Ahinoam of Jezreel. The second, Chiliab, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmi, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David at Hebron. Let's work our way through some of these guys. The first son born to him was Amnon from Ahinoam of Jezreel doesn't turn out too well for him. Amnon actually decides to rape his half-sister, a woman named Tamar. That kicks off a bloody civil feud in David's family with a whole bunch of half-brothers and half-sisters that almost completely destroys his family. In fact, another one of the half-brothers, Tamar's, um, Tamar's brother, ends up murdering and taking, murdering Abnon and taking his entire life. That's just terrible. The second son, Chiliab, was born to Abigail. The second son, this is the only time he's mentioned, by the way, he seems to have died at a very young age because you go further on down the story, it's the third and the fourth son that are listed as the oldest that are still alive because Abnon's already dead. The third son is Absalom, born to Maka, daughter of Talmi, king of Geshur. This is the guy who murders the oldest son, 
Amnon. Now, he's the guy who does revenge for his sister's rape. By the way, he also later tries to overthrow David and to take his throne. And in the process of trying to overthrow his own father, he also loses his life. So we have the first three sons. The third one murders the first son. And then the third one dies in an attempt to overthrow the father. And the second one dies in infancy. Is this polygamy working out really well? Do you see a lot of interfamily fighting going on? A lot of difficulty in the home? Oh, yeah, it's all over the place. By the way, we should also mention that Absalom's mother is Maka, whose father was um, Gesher, King Gesher, of, or, or Talmud King of Gesher. King of Gesher, by the way, is the kingdom that is north of Abner and Ishbosheth. So you have the southernmost kingdom, which is Judah. Then you have the northern kingdom of Israel. If you go even further north, it would be Gesher. David marries this girl to create a political alliance above him. To sort of put uh, Ishbosheth and Abner in a pincer, because he's got a relationship with the kingdom north of them. But we'd also should tell you that this kingdom and this woman is not part of the family of God. When David marries this woman, this is what you would call in the New Testament terms, unequally yoked. She's not a follower of God's word. Now think of the logical ramifications. David has multiple wives. He has a kingdom to run. Maka has a son. How much time do you think David spent with Absalom? How much time do you think he spent training his son, telling him about the word of God and God's love for him? Almost none at all. So who raises Absalom? Mom raises Absalom. Mom, who isn't part of the family of God, raises a son that turns into a very godless man who murders his oldest brother and who tries to overthrow his father. Sort of makes sense. But this is part of the problem with polygamy. Go to the next son, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. At the time of David's death, this is the fourth son down, but he's the oldest son surviving at this point. Uh, David decides that Solomon, his son, is to be the heir of the throne, to be the next king. But in that process of that time, Adonijah stages a coup to try and overthrow Solomon and does not end well. Guess who else dies? Adonijah. So we see that this is a complete and total basket case of a family. Don't you think it would have worked a lot better if it was one man, one woman in marriage, for life? Exactly. Polygamy is a total mess. And this brings a question for us. Many of us love Jesus, but aren't there parts of God's word that we conveniently ignore just so we can follow the culture around us? Just like David did? If we ignore God's word and follow the culture around us, the honest truth is the end is always going to spell disaster because whatever God tells us in his word is always for our good. It's always because he wants what's best for us. It's always because he loves us. He's not trying to restrict you and ruin you. He's trying to give you what is best for you. So any rebellion against that always comes with suffering and pain. 
what is it in your life? You may be following Jesus and God's word in many areas, but what is that one area where you've closed your eyes to Jesus and you're following the culture of the world around you? David struggled to bring his sex life under God's word. Many young adults struggle to bring their sex life under the authority of God's word today. Well, hey, everybody lives together. I'm doing that because that's what everybody does. Yet the Bible says that you get married and then you enter into a sexual relationship with your spouse, not beforehand. How about homosexuality? We have entire denominations that claim to follow God's word. But when it comes to the area of homosexuality, they close their eyes. They say, well, the Bible doesn't really know what it's talking about in that area. The Bible needs to be rewritten at that area. You're doing the same thing that David did. It ends in suffering and pain. You have entire denominations that are doing the same thing today with transgender. Oh, maybe God made you the wrong gender. It's okay to uh, change your gender and be somebody different. No, the Bible tells you that God made you exactly the way he wants you to be to accomplish the work he's given you to do. God didn't make a mistake when he made you. He made you the right gender. He gave you the right gifts. He gave you the right talents. Think about Moses. He says, well, I speak with a lisp. God says, I made you that way for a reason. I didn't make a mistake. He says the same thing to you today. So if there's any area of your life today that when I'm speaking about this, that God is touching your heart and saying, yeah, that's the area you're hiding from me. That's the area you need to give to me. Repent, turn back to the Lord, but it's all for your good. Not because God wants to take anything away from you. Well, that brings us to the next section which is we read this, the relationship between Abner and Ishbosheth broke down. While David is busy adding women to his life, Ishbosheth, the king of the north, is having trouble keeping control of the women who are already in his life. Abner, who is the one who installed Ishbosheth as king, is now having really second thoughts about this guy in leadership, which to me I'm wondering why it took him about two years to have second thoughts. Remember, Ishbosheth is not his real name. His real name is Ishbal, man of the Lord, but his nickname the people have given him is Ishbosheth, the man of shame. When a guy is called the man of shame, that's not the person you want to put in charge, right? It just happened to take Abner a little bit of time to figure it out. Let me read this. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So Ishbosheth is growing weaker, but Abner was figuring a way to grow himself and his power stronger. What was he doing? Now Abner had a concubine, or excuse me, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Like polygamy, the Bible does not tell us a great deal about concubines and how this was practiced in this, in this time. Uh, but 
we know that Saul, excuse me, Saul had at least one concubine. Uh, other men in the Old Testament had concubines. David had multiple concubines. And then Solomon, well, he took it to the max. According to 1 Kings chapter 11, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he had trouble remembering their names for obvious reasons. Just for understanding, a concubine is similar to a mistress. And when you have people in the Old Testament who happen to operate and have positions of a lot of power, it seems like you find concubines around them, which, by the way, is not necessarily different from what we see today. Have you guys ever followed the royal family? Do these kings and princes in the royal family tend to have a mistress on the side? Oh, yeah. It's definitely a practice out there. Well, but it seems like is gone, going on here is um, Saul, or I'm having a hard time this morning, Abner is sleeping with Saul's mistress. Now, in a royal family like this, if a man sleeps with the king's mistress or the former king's mistress, what they are doing is they are making an attempt to usurp and take the throne. You wonder where you can see that. Uh, fast forward, if you know the story, down to Absalom's rebellion against David. After he, Absalom kicked David out of Jerusalem, what was the first thing he did with the concubines that David left behind? Slept with them as a way of saying he was usurping the throne. So Abner, at this point, is attempting to push Ishbosheth out of power and to take his place. Ishbosheth calls him on the carpet on this one. What do you think you are doing? Look at Abner's response. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Does anyone see a big ego in Abner? A really big Ebo. He gets reprimanded by a guy who's a weakling that he despises. And instead of uh, repenting, instead of listening, he says, who do you think you're talking to, king? Do you realize who I am? And when I was studying, there's a little lesson that jumped off, jumped off the page to me. Isn't it true Ishbosheth was completely right. Abner was completely wrong. But proud people won't listen when people that are weaker than them calls them out on sin. Isn't that true? Proud people won't listen when people that are weaker than them call them out on sin. People like Abner are so full of themselves they can only listen to themselves. Now here's the truth. 
it's very easy for any one of us to be like Abner on any given day. How do you react? How do I react when somebody who we don't necessarily respect or somebody we suddenly look down on calls us out on sin or points out a fault in our life? Don't we start to make excuses? Don't we start to push back? What is that? Pride. Pride in our heart. Well, Abner is filled with pride. That's something that easily comes to each one of us. Now, Abner's pride is interesting because his pride now turns to spite. He says, how dare you call me out, Ishbosheth? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to take your entire kingdom and I'm going to deliver the entire kingdom to David, which he says is what should have happened anyway. Now, here's the funny part. All of Abner's words, all of his pride, because he thinks he controls the future, he's in charge of the future, all of his spite that he thinks he's going to do against Ishbosheth just to belittle him. While Abner thinks he's in control, who's actually in control? God. God is accomplishing what he set out to do through the spite, arrogance, and pride of Abner's own heart. God's in charge when Abner thinks he's in charge. That brings me to a verse that I love, one of my favorite ones. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Just like you would turn a garden hose and put it from one flower to the next, God effortlessly turns a king's heart whichever way he wants it. I find that incredibly comforting. We are in a world where our government and people in charge have more and more power and control over our lives. Many of them, are opposed to Christians, they're opposed to Jesus. It's sometimes a scary position to be in. And we say, what am I supposed to do? Pray and talk to God because God is actually in control of them and he's in control of their hearts. Just like he took Abner's pride and ego and spite and used it to accomplish his very will to bring the kingdom to David. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Remember last week I told you that Ishbosheth is only a puppet king? That actually Abner is the one who's really in charge? Here's more evidence of that. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Well, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all over to Israel. More arrogance, more pride, huge ego, Abner. He says, the land belongs to me. Now, what does he mean by make a covenant? There's what Abner's trying to do. If you make a covenant with me, I'll bring everybody over to you, but in exchange for that, I want a high-ranking position in your kingdom. Abner knows that right now he's on the losing side. He's figured, I'm going to cut bait and swim. I'm going to go to David's side while I still have power. I'm going to use my power to negotiate myself into a high-ranking position so I can still be in charge. Abner 
is all about Abner. Abner's not repenting for anything he's done, just trying to stay in control. Now, here's where it's interesting. Look how David responds. And he said, good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of Philistines. The first thing that really struck me is, how could David say, I will make a covenant with you, Abner. I'll enter into an agreement with you. Abner has a huge ego. He's the last person you want to deal with. For a long period, when Saul was in charge, Abner was the one who chased David and kept trying to kill David. For almost seven years, Abner's the one who's created this entire civil war and all of this blood. David, how can you enter into an agreement with a guy like this that you could only trust him as far as you could throw him? Here's what David is doing. He knows that peace is more important than conflict. And he will try to enter into an agreement with Abner if it can bring peace in the midst of the war. Now, David's not going to try to compromise his principles, but he's going to humble himself. He's going to do what he can to bring peace. There's another thing that's sort of strange that's going on here. David says, but Abner, make sure you bring Michael. Michael is David's first wife. You may remember this from 1 Samuel. Uh, David had to kill a bunch of uh, Philistines and bring their foreskins to be able to obtain her as a bride price for her. David and Michael were married. Michael actually helped David escape at one point. Uh, And then after David escaped, later on, King Saul gave this woman to another man specifically to spite David, just to irritate David to know that his wife was now sleeping with somebody else. And David says, I want her back. There's two reasons. One is because having her back would help reunite the northern and the southern kingdoms. Remember, she's Saul's daughter. Now David would be remarried to Saul's daughter. That would bring people together. But there's something else we need to realize. David and Michael were never divorced. That marriage still stood. When Saul took his daughter, who was already married to David, and gave her to another man. That man entered into an adulterous relationship, and he knew it full well. But he jumped at it just because this would give him a chance to become the king's son-in-law. So this relationship between David and Michael is still in effect. So the, the husband she has now, we're going to read about this guy, and it's going to sound like it's really pathetic what's happening to him. But it's really all his own fault. He knew this woman was already married. Should have never got involved with her to begin with. Next set of verses. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Barim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. 
like I said, don't feel so sorry for this guy. He knew what he was getting involved in. This gives us a principle. I think it's worthy of writing down. When a relationship begins with sin, it seldom ends with satisfaction. When a relationship begins with sin, it seldom ends with satisfaction. Paltiel's relationship with Michael begin, began with sin and it ended with suffering. He knew it was wrong. He just didn't know that David would actually come back and take her back. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, for some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. By the way, this took a long time. There was no such thing as Zoom meetings. You couldn't call, you couldn't text. Imagine actually having to travel to these places, to have meetings with these guys. But Saul acknowledges here that for a long time, the people have always wanted David to be king. So why wasn't David king? Because of Abner. Abner, Mr. Big Ego, is the one who put himself in charge and resisted the people's will about bringing David as king. Abner was the one who put Ishbosheth on the throne, not the people. But now, isn't this interesting? Out of spite, he's actually accomplishing God's will and bringing the people back to David to have him become king. Now, Abner is switching sides, but he's switching sides exactly for the wrong reasons. Then Abner went to tell David at Hebron, all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, Well, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. Remember, Abner and David are not at all best friends. Abner was the guy who was in charge of chasing him and trying to kill him for years. Abner was the guy who's been the sole cause of all this civil war, the sole cause of all the suffering, because the people in the north actually did want David as their king. Abner is only coming over to David with selfish motives to give himself a position power on the winning side. Abner has absolutely no repentance for what he's done whatsoever. Yet David is willing to swallow hard. David is willing to let the past be the past and to work with him to bring an end to this civil war. David understands peace and he understands that sometimes you have to humble yourself to achieve it. Sometimes you have to work really hard to find it. Which reminds me, that's the same thing we're supposed to do as Christians, isn't it? Look what it said, Paul says in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do everything we can to be at peace with one another, not conflict. 
One other thing I should mention here, I thought this is really practical. Notice what David did to promote peace. When Abner and his 20 men security guard force showed up, he didn't just sit them down across the table. What did he do? He had a feast. He had a meal. You know, when you're in conflict with a person and you decide to say, hey, let's talk. Let's have a meal together. Doesn't that tend to create a much healthier and stronger and better relationship when you eat with someone? Yeah. This is all part of David's strategy to bring peace. Let's eat together and dine together, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that life groups, we eat together as life groups, because it creates a healthier relationship together as life groups. It's one of the reasons we have a chili cook-off, because eating together is a good thing for us to do together because it helps us draw closer together. It's all helpful stuff. Paul says this in Ephesians, bearing with one another in love, eager to, what? Maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. As Christians, we should work hard to maintain unity. Now we get to somebody who doesn't want to maintain unity, a guy named Joab. Joab's consuming desire for revenge led to sin. You remember Joab, he's David's army general, and Joab had his little brother killed by Abner in the war last week, and so Joab is out for blood. He's out for a pound of flesh. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he's let him go, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab said to the king, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and coming in and to know all that you are doing. You see, David and Joab are very different people. David is bending over to make the past the past, willing to work with a man who's filled with pride, filled with ego, who's only coming over for the wrong reasons. David's doing everything he can to make peace. But Joab's different, isn't he? He's doing everything to keep the conflict going. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak to him privately. There he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashael, his brother. Remember how Ashael died? A bloody gut wound, which, by the way, is a very painful way to die. Joab gave, Ab gave Abner the exact same wound that he gave his brother. Now, what Joab did is particularly terrible. Hebron, where the city is, is actually a city of refuge in the Old Testament, a place where you are never allowed to avenge blood. Joab also defied King David's orders. Joab also 
cold-blooded murdered Abner in a time of peace, where Abner killed Joab's brother actually, and he didn't want to. It was in a time of war. And fourthly, and most importantly of all, Abner is about to try and destroy inadvertently all of the peace negotiations that David and Abner have been working on to end a national civil war because Joab wants revenge. Here's a lesson for us. If we are a person who focuses on getting even, who focuses on getting revenge for those who have hurt us, what we will do is we will become a very dark person who only cares about themselves. That's what Joab became. A person who was selfish, who only thought about himself, a person who only cared about himself. All of us have people in our lives who have hurt us, hurt us very deeply. People that it's very difficult for us to talk to, people that it's very difficult for us to be with, people it's very difficult for us not to have snarky and snipey remarks when we're around them. But we have a choice at how we're going to handle those things. Are we going to be like Joab and just wait for our opportunity to use a sword to get our pound of flesh? Or are we going to be like David and say, you know, I need to let the past be the past. I need to do all I can to humble myself and work with this person, even if they're prideful, even if they're arrogant, even if the only reason they're working with me is a bad reason. I will work with them and pursue peace because that's my job in this world. Think about what Jesus did for us. We were alienated from God. We were far from God, enemies of God, fully deserving the lake of fire. But Jesus at great cost to himself, worked really, really hard on that cross to give us peace that we do not deserve. We're to be echoing that in our relationships with other people, aren't we? To work really, really hard to not to be people of conflict like the world around us, to to be people of peace who let the past be the past, We offer forgiveness to others like Jesus has forgiven us. We try to move on, not just for our best, but for their best. Now afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless, forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. I had nothing to do with this. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. In other words, David curses his general. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashael to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. In other words, David made Joab walk in front of Abner's casket in the funeral. That's humbling him, isn't it? And they buried Abnon at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, 
Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. David's fasting as he's mourning this man's death. But notice this. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. What David was trying to do, he was trying to restore peace in the midst of that civil war. So he mourned for Abner. And it reminded me of what Jesus says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Wasn't that exactly what David was doing in that funeral? Loving his enemy? Doing good to those who hated him? To try and bring peace in the nation? And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zrui, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer for all of his wickedness. David worked really, really hard to achieve peace. He humbled himself and worked with a man who was filled with pride and ego to achieve peace in a world of war. Joab was different. Wouldn't humble himself. All he wanted is revenge. Folks, as I said earlier, Jesus humbled himself. He went to the cross to make peace between us and God. Jesus worked really, really hard to bring that peace. We as God's people are to be like Jesus in our relationship with others. We're to humble ourselves and work really, really hard to bring peace in a world filled with conflict. And when we do, it's like a breath of fresh air to the people who are around us. Amen. Heavenly Father, may we not be people like Joab, who after all the hurts people have done to us, all we can think about is revenge. We don't want to be people who are selfish, who only think about ourselves, who are prideful. Oh, excuse me, people like Abner who are selfish and think about themselves and who are prideful. Father, we want to um, be people that are more like David, who are willing to humble ourselves and work with others to create peace in a world filled with conflict. And in doing that, may we make your name famous. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.